The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! for another episode of the must be destroyed on site movie podcast i guess we're at uh, 48 now so uh we're just one more episode and then we're going to be going to our big dawn of the dead episode that we have planned so that's exciting but uh i'm your host lee russell i'm joined by my co-host daniel harper how are you doing sir i'm doing well and that's exciting for uh some of us yes yeah <laughs> no it's very exciting i agree <laughs> let's do let's do dawn of the dead for 49 Let's just go. Let's just jump ahead and do it right at forty nine instead of <laughs> throw, just throw off people's complete uh, like accounting of like what a big round number looks like. Yeah. Well, the, well, the one we did pick for forty nine though is uh, pretty pretty extensive in its in its own right. So uh, that's true. Uh, we have two movies tonight. We're going to be doing uh, one of them is a Hammer film. Another one is sort of inspired by Hammer and uh, Amicus type films, but it's from Spain instead. We are doing Taste the Blood of Dracula, and we're doing Horror Express tonight, so that should be fun. Uh, two personal favorites of mine, so we'll, we'll get into that soon here. Before we do that, we'll get into what you've been uh, watching as of late, Dan, as I haven't really watched anything because I've just been sort of sick and busy with work and shit, so uh, I'll just turn it over to you. Sure. Your cough does sound better than it It's It's only like, it only goes for like, two minutes at a time now instead of five minutes at a time. So I'm getting better. Um, yeah, I know. Bronchitis or whatever. It, it, it sucks. It's, and especially for a podcaster where your voice is your, is your medium, you know? So, although I do, I do have this more sort of rough manly voice right now. That's very, very intimidating. I kind of, I kind of want you to get to a point where you just sound like Tom Waits all the time. That would, that would be the, uh, the ultimate goal of this uh, podcast really. Well, uh, it, I, if if I just start drinking a lot more bourbon, I could probably get there pretty quick. I could just start going, God's away, God's away on business, business. Or uh, just take up smoking, you know, really. You know. I don't want to do that. No. <laughs> I really don't. It's amazing that, like, even, even like, uh, you know, masculine men of our generation, of our, of our age, just kind of, like, just take smoking as just this very like no 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 I'm okay not getting lung cancer you know like twenty years before like people like twenty years older than us smoking was like this like marker of your masculinity and now it's like yeah I'd rather not have cancer like I'm good you know I will um, say I, I will say this I enjoy the occasional cigar but even then I haven't had one of those in years so yeah yeah anyway so uh, that was that was kind of a, a, a an offshoot a completely irrelevant tangent that I uh, took us on so uh, you know, we fucking roll around here hey you know staying on topic is for losers really uh, it is so, um, so yeah I watched uh, two movies this week and I will uh, mention them both the first I watched was uh, from some franchise you might know that uh, I'm, I'm vaguely connected to and it's uh, called Doctor Who and the Daleks uh, starring a uh, Mr. Peter Cushing as a uh, Doctor Who, uh, Dr. Period Who, 
Yeah. Um, and uh, this is a. I think we're going to cover this on this podcast at some point. So mm-hmm. I think we'll. Uh, I'll kind of skip the the full on discussion, but um, it's probably better if you're not a fan of the show. Honestly, that, yeah. that's probably what I'll say about that. If, if you're if you're a fan of the show and you've seen the uh, 1964 serial, The Daleks, uh, which this is uh, kind of directly based on, uh, you'll probably enjoy it more. Uh, if you've seen that serial and you're kind of aware of both the strengths and weaknesses of that, the movie version is at least shorter, so it, it does uh, skip some of the uh, the long uh, meandering through caves and such uh, that the that the TV version has. But at the same time, completely fails in almost every other way, except that it's in color. So um, <laughs> uh, it, it is it is kind of pretty to look at, just a, just as a candy coated uh, kind of thing. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that for now. Peter Cushing's good in it, and the uh, little girl that plays his granddaughter is uh, pretty good in it. Little Susie Who, little Susie um, Who, <laughs> which I couldn't I couldn't stop thinking of her as little Susie Who as I was uh, watching the movie. Uh, the other movie I watched, and uh, I think you might have a few things to say about this, and it's another one we might cover on this show at some point, is The Rover uh, from 2014 uh, with uh, Guy Pierce mm-hmm. and uh, Robert Pattinson. Um, I watched this on your recommendation, and uh, dear God, I'm glad I watched it finally. Nice. This is a uh, film. It's a very. It basically takes place a few years after a uh, financial collapse, like an economic collapse in Australia, and uh, it's kind of implied that it's worldwide. But I mean, we really don't get any context of the outside world. It's kind of minimalist. It's a movie kind of about this world after a, a major economic collapse. This kind of apocalyptic event that basically ruins society, in which they're just kind of roving bands of. Um, thieves kind of wandered around and everyone's in extreme poverty, but uh, not so much about radiation sickness or whatever that a lot of these kind of apocalyptic movies turn into. It's easy to kind of compare to Mad Max. I think that's kind of an unfair comparison in some ways, but I think it's it's really easy to do. I think it is not a perfect film. I I do do have some issues with uh, some of the way that certain things are handled and uh, some of the... uh, stuff that kind of happens towards the last third of the film, certainly. Um, I think there are some issues with sort of the uh, kind of the overall weight of kind of what happens in the film, but I think it's uh, definitely worth a watch, if nothing else, for the performances, uh, both of uh, Guy Pierce, who is just phenomenal in this, and mm-hmm. uh, again, my, my decision to kill Leonardo DiCaprio a couple of weeks ago in Movie God for Guy Pierce just is uh, solidified by uh, seeing Spot this Spot on, so, yeah. Uh, it's it's just straight up like yeah no uh, Guy Pierce is phenomenal in this and I would hate to lose him and uh, Robert Pattinson is, he's really is, good he's really fucking good in this and uh, yep. his southern accent only feels a little fake if if just if a, I, just, I mean, just a tad yeah. I mean I mean I'm 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 a southerner I can spot the southern the bad southern mm-hmm. accents uh, his is mostly okay it's only a little fake so that's actually a mark of honor for an actor to have, where I can say, I can tell you're doing a Southern accent, you're not actually from the South, but you don't sound obviously wrong. You just sound, okay, not from the South, so... Yeah, I, I really love that film. Um, the comparison to Mad Max is just very, uh, just just very on the surface. Like, it, to, to totally compare it to Mad Max is definitely unfair. It, it, there's a lot more going on in this one. It's much more minimalist and realistic in, in the way it depicts this sort of... Uh, economic apocalypse mm-hmm. you know there's no 
there's no roving bands of mohawked homosexual bikers running around trying to steal oil from small civilizations and stuff, you know. It's, it's it's much more realistic in the way it depicts stuff, and all of the roving bikers in this movie are straight. So per, yeah, pretty much. You know, yeah, yeah. There's no feral kids running around throwing boomerangs at people and shit. But uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's a nice one. Even if you're a big fan of more of the sort of Mad Max kind of version of this sort of film, I think I think even those people would have a find a lot to take away from this film that they would enjoy because it it really does present this sort of situation in a realistic way that's very engaging. So it, it's a really really good film. Well, ultimately, the Mad Max universe is about kind of excess. It's about, you know, car chases and, and this sort of a sense of this wasteland that's inhabited by caricatures. And it's about kind of big, strong, operatic emotions. This is sort of the same general idea of we're going to use the Australian wasteland, but we're going to use it to kind of turn inward on ourselves and look at kind of these very small character interactions to some degree. Yeah. Um, there's this line, uh, there's this bit uh, where uh, I think they were shooting the searchers and um, John Ford asked, uh, or uh, John Wayne asked John Ford, what, why do we come all the fucking way out here for? And uh, what can we shoot out here? That we, and uh, Ford answers uh, the, the most important thing of all, the human face. Hmm. You know, that, that's kind of one of those famous stories about John Ford, and I, you know that that's pretty much what's happening in uh, the Rover. It's it's really about contrasting the uh, expanse with these uh, very intimate kind of human characters in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and a, a lot of a lot of Australian uh, films have been doing that recently. In like the last ten fifteen years, uh, there's just been a litany of like incredibly well done genre films from Australia that whether they're horror or apocalyptic or whatever, where they use sort of the natural beauty of Australia as a sort of a contrast to the actual human drama. Also, just this sort of crushing, oppressive horror that can come from the environment in Australia as well, uh, in comparison. Uh, very well done. Like Movies like Wolf Creek and um, Rogue, uh, both from Greg McLean, I guess his name is, both excellent, excellent sort of genre horror movies, and both of them use the sort of uh, Australian landscape to like full effect. So it's nice. It's, it's nice to see a lot of really great movies coming coming from that part of the world again. Yep. No, I agree. All right. So I don't have anything to really talk about. So um, I think we can uh, move on directly, and we're going to be starting with "Taste the Blood of Dracula" from 1970. Feel the cold grip of his presence. Sense the clammy excitement of his evil. Taste the sharp fear that he alone can bring. Dracula's blood. This way, gentlemen. We know the way. These men thought they had tasted all that life had to offer. Ready when you are, gentlemen. Would you be willing to sell your souls to the devil? If one thought that one's experience might be extended. It would be extended to infinity. 
There's someone there. Dracula is back to choose his human victims. Alice. Who are you? How do you know my name? Dracula is back to select his companions in darkness. Who must die that he may live. If you shock easily, stay away. She's neither dead nor alive. Lucy! 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 Prepare yourself. Every nerve, every muscle. No. Prepare yourself for the greatest shock of all. fifth hammer dracula film is it the uh, fifth or the fourth it is the fifth directed by peter sasdy uh who is mostly known for doing tv stuff although he did do a couple of other hammer films he did countess dracula and hands of the ripper most notably um written by anthony hines who uh at this point was going by the pseudonym of john elder who uh, was a major producer for Hammer, did 37 of their first 50 films, and wrote and produced many Hammer films as well. This, of course, is starring Christopher Lee, and we'll get into how reluctantly this is starring Christopher Lee in a little while, uh, as Dracula, of course. Jeff Lee, and this is actually just basically a roll call, roll call of Hammer reg- regulars for the most part. Uh, Jeffrey Keane is William Hargood. Gwen Watford is Martha Hargood. Linda Hayden, the lovely Linda Hayden, is Alice Hargood. Peter Salas is Samuel Paxton. Anthony Higgins is Paul Paxton. Uh, Isla Blair is Lucy Paxton. John Carson is Jonathan Secker. Martin Jarvis is Jeremy Secker. Ralph Bates uh, is Lord Courtley, and this was sort of his introduction to Hammer Films. He was going to be like the new sort of young star they were going to start putting their uh, money behind uh, in Hammer Productions. Uh, Roy Kinnear as Weller, and the always uh, amiable Michael Ripper as Cobb. Uh, the music was done by James Bernard. I'll let you get into the uh, synopsis for this one, Daniel. Awesome. Well, uh, I apologize to the uh, listeners because I had intended to uh, actually write a uh, very compelling and interesting synopsis. And then I decided I'd rather drink. So I drank yeah. instead of write it. So um, you know that shows the level of professionalism I show towards this podcast. But uh, you get what you pay for this. So uh, there you go. Uh, all right, so after an extended prologue in which Veruca Salt's dad uh, discovers <laughs> the dying Dracula and uh, collects his um, uh, dusty blood and uh, other affects, uh, we are uh, treated to a church scene where we are introduced to uh, our main character, a, a rich white dude, and his daughter, the daughter of rich white dude. The daughter of rich white dude is uh, awakening to her sexuality, as we can expect from a uh, movie made in the early 70s. Very interested in uh, dating a young man. Uh, she is accosted by a uh, rich white asshole dude to, uh, in no way are you allowed to uh, go and uh, fuck that guy, uh, or even present in any way that you're going to do that. 
He is very priggish. He is very much uh, presented as anti-sex. So it is of no surprise to anyone when he uh, shows up, um, goes with the two of his buddies to a brothel. Yeah, uh, where he is uh, completely um, a, a guest of honor and respected by the um, the clientele and the uh, the owners of the brothel. After a an extended sequence of a, a woman dancing with a snake, he is approached by a uh, very nice looking young man who uh, says, "I am uh, totally willing to make you guys not bored anymore. That you guys are. I, I know you're really unhappy with your lives and you're just tired." of just getting all this pussy because you have no imagination. The only way that you're really going to uh, appreciate life is by uh, giving yourself to the Dark Lord Satan. Um, Mm. The guys agree, then find out that they owe a thousand guineas, which I looked it up. is probably worth about $100,000 in modern U.S. currency. Holy fuck. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's hard to compare currency between um, 1890 Britain and modern day U.S., but it's a fuckload of money. I mean, not. It's a lot of fucking money. They uh, do pay uh, Rook Salt's dad for the privilege of owning the blood dust. They uh, go. They conduct a long, a, a fairly interesting ritual in mm-hmm. which they uh, re- reformulate the blood of Dracula. All three of them refuse to drink it. The uh, young dude drinks it for them dies, then basically Dracula is reformed, and the rest of the film is essentially a uh, extended metaphor for uh, female sexuality being a bad thing, and uh, yeah. that the uh, the ritual patriarchs get punished for allowing their daughters to engage in sexual behavior in <laughs> a uh, standard sequence. So that's my plot <laughs> summary. Can you tell which part of this movie I was more interested in than the other, by the mm. way? Uh, yeah, this this film is, um, for my money, this is actually probably the best film in the Hammer Dracula series. I, I think it's probably the best written one. This was a film that was originally not supposed to have Dracula in it at all. Ralph Bates, who plays Lord Courtley, was supposed to be, I guess, pretty much the main villain in the film until they did some rewrites at the last minute to get Christopher Lee back in. Y- yeah, this is uh, this is a movie about uh, Victorian hypocrisy, for, for the most part. You have all these stately uh, gentleman types who pretend to be uh, saintly sort of gentlemen of their time. The, the excuse they give their wives is that, oh, we're going to uh, do charity work at the last Sunday of every month, when really they're going to the brothel that is hidden behind the soup kitchen in, in the east side or whatever of London. And yeah, they're they're basically, they're bored with the shit that, they, that they're experiencing. They, they have the uh, brothel owner who is this uh, very flamboyant gay caricature. P- pretty amusing, though. I don't know, no, I... I, in in this context, I actually don't mind that at all, and mm. and um, maybe that kind of makes me a bad social justice ally. But I, I actually am um, thoroughly amused by the uh, very obviously gay man genuflecting to the uh, rich white assholes uh, for money, because you very clearly in this performance you get like you guys are assholes. I hate you, but my job is to uh, to make you happy, and you're going to give me a lot of money, so you know I kind of hate myself the whole time, and that's. I'm fine with that. Like it's well, it's well, very, it's realistic, you know. Well, here's the thing. The thing I really love about this film is that the performances really sell the characters really well. Like there, mm. there is not there is not a weak performance in this film mm. at all. In particular, Jeff- the actress who plays Alice. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't. Linda uh, Hayden. Yeah, 
she's clearly having a blast with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, uh, you know, uh, I just want to, I just want to single her out now while we're talking about it. I mean, there are other performances that, I, I mean, everybody's really good in this film, um, but, but she in particular is just sinking her teeth into this. And uh, I thought was really worth noting in, in a film where she might've gotten overlooked if, if I didn't specifically point her out as, as she's having a great time. And she, and she's done a lot of good stuff. I mean, she's also been in a lot of bad movies as well. Like she did the um, I'm not I'm not sure if you're familiar with this series, but it was sort of like later '70s. It's the uh, Confessions series. Like there's Confessions of a Window Cleaner, Confessions of a Taxi Driver, Confessions of a this and Plumber's Mate, and this and that. It, it's the uh, it's a series that stars this uh, Mick Jagger lookalike called uh, Robin uh, Asquith, and, and and basically it's a, it's sort of a a modern sort of reinterpretation of kind of like the carry on films to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, much, much, there's a like basically just more sex and nudity in it. It's sort of like carry on with more sex and nudity. Well, I need to, I need to put those on my uh, list to watch them. Yeah. But, but uh, Linda Hayden was in two of those uh, and she's very good. She's a very good comedic actress as well. Um, but she does really well here. I'll single out though, uh, just going back to the um, characters selling their character. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Keen as William Hargood is a complete and fuck, total fucking bastard. Like reprehensible beyond belief. Like you were saying, how how the, uh, the 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 obviously gay brothel owner is, you know, basically just putting on a face to get these rich customers to pay a lot of money. It's quite obvious that he does not approve of the brothel owner at all. He doesn't approve of anybody actually. Like he is just a fucking prick. And actually, his two companions are probably more uh, uh, amiable. Um, the, the the guy who plays Paxton, Samuel Paxton. He's sort of the sort of meek, cowardly character. The guy who plays uh, Secker, John Carson, he's more of a just like the everyman, sort of amiable, generally nice guy who's just in with the wrong crowd. But yeah, these guys, they, they do the ceremony uh, with Ralph, Ralph Bates' character of Lord Courtley. And basically, they ruin the ceremony, and that's what brings Dracula back. And I'm kind of conf- I'm kind of wondering like what the script for this was before they brought Christopher Lee back in, because essentially the story here is, and I think I have it here in my notes. Uh, yeah, the the film was not originally going to feature Dracula at all, and because Christopher Lee at this point he was just getting pissed off at these scripts because they were just increasingly bad, and he didn't want to say the line, so he's like, I'm not coming back. The producers of the film were not going to, they were not going to give money to this film unless Christopher Lee came back into it. So at the very last minute, they brought him in, basically kind of blackmailed him because they're like, well, if you don't come back, Christopher, all these people are going to lose their jobs. And so he's like, okay, I'll come back. So he comes back, but he barely says anything. Like he, apparently he was, he still refused to say most of the script. Uh, So he's very few words in this film. The, the only lines I really remember are the first the second and, and the, the third. third, but the, those, those are those are the those are the lines that he really sold me on. Like I really bought him in those moments. You know? Well, uh, and then there's the one where he says Alice, and then he says Lucy. But it, yeah. I think I think his most extensive line is as soon as he resurrects, he says, "They have destroyed my servant. They will be destroyed." destroyed my servant they will be destroyed and that's pretty much it 
He, he's almost presented, he's almost not presented as actually Dracula, more as he is like a metaphor for these these uh, guys' hypocrisy coming back to bite him in the ass, essentially. I have some thoughts about that, actually. and I mean, I'll just say, I, I'm not going to shit on this film. This is a phenomenal film. I've seen this twice because I watched it uh, a few weeks ago, you know, after it was recommended after our Vampire was Lesbos episode. Mm-hmm. I watched it, enjoyed it, kind of felt it uh, It fell apart in the second half, and there's a particular reason I think it falls apart, just on a metaphorical level. Once I re-watching it for this, for this episode, I enjoyed it a lot more, because once I knew, oh, this is how the plot's going to go, I, I kind of accepted it. Once I divorced myself from what I think the film is semiotically saying, I can kind of accept it more as like, okay, it, it works on a character level, and I think it does work on a character level, on a on a plot level, on a, like, there is some really interesting stuff, but I think ultimately it's sending a, a kind of toxic message, and I, I do want to dig into that here uh, shortly, but I do really enjoy the film. I think it's really, really effective at what it does. It's uh, efficient. It really does not get in its own way, and uh Again, the performances are phenomenal. In particular, uh, the uh, the actor who plays Hargood plays a realistic drunk. I mean, that that's yeah. how many terrible drunks have you seen in a movie? You know, um, and and this guy, uh, once he starts drinking too much, once he starts uh, kind of falling over himself, uh, is uh, I I bought him in every scene. You know, it, it's just he's very effective. Um, I do I do really like this film, and I do uh, I would I would recommend it to someone just looking at it for a as a as a kind of horror film of this era. I think it's much more interesting than a lot of the uh, like the slasher stuff or the other mm-hmm. kind of Eric Carr stuff I've seen um, since starting this podcast. Yeah, and and you can you can definitely see that uh, Jeffrey Keen playing William Hargood here. Um, he not only plays him as a drunk and just a general asshole. You can see that he actually hates himself as well. Like you, you can yeah. tell that he's he's definitely not a fan of himself, uh, but he can't help himself at the same time. Um, I, I think I might agree with you. I think I see where you're probably going here. But there, there is this like in the in in the first half, it's kind of established that okay, these guys are all uh, supposed to be pinnacles of Victorian purity and and goodness, but they're secretly uh, hypocrites and they're, they're all into the same sort of vices that every other person is into. And even maybe some more vices that most people aren't into. There is this sort of undercurrent as well of the clash between uh, generations. It's, it's much, it's very much sort of uh, taps a little bit into sort of the, the sort of counterculture of the sixties and seventies with uh, younger people rejecting older values I will agree with you to a certain extent. It it does fall apart in the second half. And I think that's probably mostly to do with the fact that they had to rewrite the script to bring Christopher Lee back into it. And it turns much more into a revenge movie than it does anything else. I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of really interested in knowing what the original script was this for this was. I'm kind of interested in knowing what was intended for Lord Courtley. Like, does he become a vampire or something along those lines, because essentially the ceremony that they do, they don't drink the blood of Dracula, just Courtly does, and then they beat him to death, and then Dracula resurrects through his body. I'm kind of wondering if maybe Courtly becomes a vampire in the original script, and they become like re- reluctant servants of his, but but it, it becomes this thing where Dracula uses uh, the children of these three men to 
kill them and take revenge on them, and then he discards them when he doesn't need them anymore. But uh, I'll, I'll let you get into uh, your, your your sort of thoughts on the on the second half there because I'm interested in hearing sure. what you have to say about that. So, so I think there's a, a fundamental mistake, at least on a on a kind of a moral or message or thematic or social kind of. And, and uh, I understand that not everybody's going to see it this way. But uh, my basic thought is that there's the fundamental error in that we're supposed to uh, kind of go along with these guys in the second half. Um, they become the victims of Dracula. They, you know, fundamentally, it becomes about their fear of uh, being uh, victims. Mm-hmm. Where I thought the film was going... Uh, the first time through and kind of where I think the film loses me a little bit um, or a lot is that uh, they should have continued to drink the, the blood in the, in the, they should have gone, gone ahead and gone on with the ceremony and then had to suffer the consequences instead of making the kind of morally correct decision of like, no, this is a step too far. No, we're not going to do this. And then kind of being victimized for that, ultimately morally correct choice because ultimately who these guys are is sorry this is my politics speaking these are rich old white guys victorian white guys repressing um marginalized people like women and uh i mean we don't really see like racial oppression but you know you can't be a rich old white guy in victorian england and not be oppressing a an indian or a black person it's just a that's just what's happening fundamentally then we're expected to kind of feel for these guys and feel bad when they're killed or at least Kind of, I don't know if you, I mean, we could say maybe we're not supposed to feel bad when they're killed or when they're threatened, but ultimately we're kind of supposed to be on their side because they're they are being picked off. Uh, we're certainly supposed to see Dracula as a bigger evil. Um, also, the uh, means by which they're killed uh, is by uh, the uh, the women in their lives uh, universally. Alice kills uh, Hargood, and then uh, Lucy kills uh, the second guy, and then the Paxton. third guy. Paxton. But, but actually, Secker is killed by his son. His son, but in uh, retaliation for a uh, female character, right? Like some uh, somebody is killed, and then he's well. No, well, no. Um, uh, Secker's son is dating. Uh, I apologize. Young... I lost some of the plot in the uh, towards the end. Uh, there are a lot of characters towards the end. Secker's son, uh, Jarvis, is he? He is he is dating Lucy, who is the sister of Paul. There, it is kind of confusing. Uh, Lucy uh, is already seduced by Dracula at that point. Lucy bites Jarvis and sends Jarvis to kill his father because his father is the you know the the more decent of the three of them, mm-hmm. who is trying to figure out what what's going on and try to stop it. So he is killed by his by Paul. Or, or Jarvis, Jesus Christ, I keep getting the mix up, but um, that—that's yeah. another kind of basic issue with the last half of the film is that the the characters end up feeling a little interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So not not to interrupt you there, I was just trying to you know, like that is kind of one of those like I don't really remember who's who at a certain point. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can definitely I can definitely see your side of this. I I personally did not. Go into the second half feeling sorry for any of these three these three old guys. Um, I guess I guess if we get the sense that like the how Alice killing Hargood was out of a sense of like righteous anger uh, at him, kind of being a hypocrite as opposed mm-hmm. to she's mind controlled by Dracula. You know, I mean, once someone is mind controlled by Dracula, you can just kind of it's hard to not avoid like you're acting in an evil manner as opposed to you're acting in kind of a morally just manner of this dude who's being an asshole. It does start to start to feel like 
you're kind of acting, you're kind of treating these in kind of a morally equivalent way, you know, that, that Alice is wrong to uh, disobey her father, but also like her, her father is kind of being an asshole for not letting her date the dude. To me, it's just a little uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, say that the film is, is horrible or awful. I, mean, I think it is a great film. I mean, honestly, like just on a, on a cinematic level, I mean, some of these shots are just really, really effective. Um, yeah. uh, giving this sort of vertigo. Um, I do wonder what this film would have looked like without Christopher Lee. If it had been uh, just uh, Courtley, who had, who had been kind of the main villain, and he was uh, kind of using his wiles and, and using it to, to seduce the women, um, you felt like you were acting more out of their own agency. Um, I, I feel like I would feel differently about some of this, um, and I think it would kind of reach this kind of height that I, I think that the finished version doesn't. But I, I think the fact that the, the women are um, ultimately robbed of agency and that they are just kind of fulfilling this will of Dracula uh, means that we're ultimately just watching a, a bunch of evil people killing each other ultimately. That's fine, but ultimately I thought this film was going to go in a more interesting place than that. And uh, I think the first half is brilliant. The first half I just I loved to bits. Uh, I think it's really, really effective at, at how it uh, portrays this world and uh, the hypocrisy. Which I mean, let's. I mean, if you talk about Victorian England, Victorian England was a heyday for uh, pornography. Mm-hmm. There's very little that we can see today in the 21st century on the internet in terms of um, <laughs> varieties and, and quantity of pornography and uh, varieties of sexual expression that were not clearly there somewhere in um, upper-class Victorian England. They just pretended it wasn't there. They, mm-hmm. they just and, and that fundamental rejection of, of accepting this about themselves and the oppression of, relig- of uh, religious minorities and uh, ethnic and uh, women is kind of the fundamental flaw in Victorian <laughs> society, yeah. you know, ultimately. I just, I, I do wish that the film had not uh, pulled its punches in that way. I wish it had really gone out there. And, and I understand it's 1970, but it, it does uh, hurt the film for me. It does, it does make it, it does turn it from being something that I really could embrace and love to something that I think is, is effective at what it does, but it just falls flat. This is a film I like enough that I hate feeling this negative about, and that's Kind of, it's, it's that wasted potential because if it really is at that 40 minute mark where they refuse the blood and it all just kind of ultimately as effective on a filmic level on a like cinematic level as that last half is it still ultimately is empty because it loses that metaphor for me and that's you know that's it for me yeah i don't i don't totally disagree with that um you definitely have a good point there and I and I th- I think again, and maybe it's just maybe me wanting to believe this, but I think it, it definitely has something to do with them having to change the script to bring Christopher Lee back in. I think I think the producers probably had something to say about it, where we need to bring Christopher Lee in, we need to have him start killing people and seducing women and stuff, and we need to change the script here, 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 and here. And I think maybe that's where a lot of the subtext and stuff probably went away in the second half of the film. Yeah. And that's very unfortunate. But at the same time, again, I'll say this is my favorite of the uh, Hammer Dracula ones. Continuity-wise, you don't really need to care about that because these films don't really have much continuity through most of them. This is a direct sequel to uh, (laughs) Dracula Has Risen From His Grave. I I found out about that, and I started watching Dracula Has Risen From His Grave. I got 15 minutes in and went, why am I watching? I'm just I'm bored to shit. That one... Uh, that one sucks. Yeah. So uh, 
Yeah, so I didn't watch that, but uh, you, I might watch it for next week. I, I I'm actually interested in uh, in watching the uh, Hammer Dracula films, watching all of them. At least two have seen them. Um, I did. I did really. I, again, I did enjoy this film a lot, and I and I feel bad that I've uh, I've I've been this negative towards it, but I, I did. No, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, you bring up fair criticisms for it. Uh, I do have to ask you what what did you think of uh, Dracula's death at the end of this? Did you? Find it was a little convoluted and kind of weak. That's not a leading question at all. No. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, ultimately, I, I kind of feel like, and, and this is you can maybe uh, correct me on this. I feel like there is a, a sort of uh, what I got from watching the ending is like at the end of all of these Dracula films, Dracula dies in some uh, easily reversible way. And uh, the whole point is, uh, and then Dracula comes back in the fifth movie, and then ultimately the point isn't how Dracula is killed. I, I feel like it, it's nice to see that the uh, the woman who uh, was mind-controlled by him is kind of, he tosses her off, and then she helps trap him, and then eventually he dies in part because of that. That's that's one of the elements I, I definitely perked up at that moment. I don't know, I, I think it's, ultimately at that point I wasn't really even paying that close of attention to it yeah. exactly. What's happening just because, oh, this is your genre furniture. This is kind of the, the stuff that just has to happen to make the movie end. And um, I did like Christopher Lee in it. I think mm-hmm. I mean, um, <laughs> we'll talk more about Christopher Lee when we when we get to Horror Express. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I am I am kind of uh, watching the young Christopher Lee in some of this stuff and going like, well, that's a guy we should really be paying attention to. Like that guy. He's going places. That guy, yeah, that, that, that young kid. He's yeah, that, got a little, he's got a little moxie. That young kid of 45 or so in uh, yeah. 1970, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> Shit. But no, I actually. Sorry, I, I feel bad for I feel bad for being the. Uh, the I'm I'm really happy I'm watching all these uh, Christopher Lee movies now. Uh, this week I watched two movies with Peter Cushing and two with Christopher Lee. You yeah, should be yeah. happy about that. Yeah, yeah. No, but I actually put the uh, the, the death of Dracula thing to you just because the popular consensus for a lot of these films is that Christopher Lee's death is usually pretty fucking weak sauce at the end of most of these ones, and I actually disagree with this one. I like the one. For this, even though you know, I mean, we're both we're both atheists. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't buy into the right. fucking Christian bullshit. But I mean, it fits the storyline. You have to just kind of go with the theology at a certain point. But the idea of a vampire, like, the, like once you accept the supernatural exists, you have to kind of like go with the rules of it. Yeah, um, well, and, I, and, I, and I'm fine with that. I I did like the imagery of like he's uh, the stained glass window and then the cross and it's well, burning him, yeah, you know, yeah. sort of like, thing. You know, like the. The whole idea that Paul and Lucy, they come back and they basically uh, reconcentrate. What, what's the fucking word for it? Where Reconcentrate. Reconsecrate. 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 There you go. And, and, and they, make it, they make it holy again. So they set basically as a trap for Dracula. And I think that works in that way. It, it feels really good. Like, and also you get Dracula's point of view for a few seconds there where he sees the entire church as it was years ago. And, and 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 you know and it basically kind of like stuns them and shit. I, I really like that. Oh, that is an effect. Yeah, and I I really love the camera work in that scene. Mm-hmm. That was actually I was gonna I was gonna praise the direction, um, in that scene and in the uh, the bordello scene. The yeah, uh, uh, there, there's some really nice stuff that feels very contemporary to 1970 in terms of like the way stuff was shot. I mean, obviously these films are, are fairly low budget and fairly kind of, kind of not, uh, there's not a, a lot of attention paid to a lot of this stuff, but I, I think that uh, some of the, uh, there's some fairly kinetic camera moves and, and, and 
shooting going on that I I think really sells the the hedonism of the earlier mm-hmm. scene, and then the the kind of woozy uh, I'm I'm falling to my death of the of the uh, final sequence. So um, I did admire some of the direction in this. Um, and I mean, as far as Dracula deaths go, actually, uh, the previous movie we're talking about, Dracula has risen from his grave, which is not a great one in the series, honestly. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that right here, just my personal opinion. But actually, that has that actually has probably the coolest Dracula death in the entire series. And and you do see a little of that in the beginning of this film, where he's impaled on that big golden cross, and and that's actually pretty cool. I like that. And I uh, also like that you see Dracula bleeding from his eyes, which uh, is a good little subtle connection to the next film we're going to be doing here in a, in a little bit. I, I, I also want to mention, of course, the uh, the score from James Bernard. Uh, he, he basically did the, the entire Dracula score for the series. And so there's sort of se- several pieces of music that he did that pop up from film to film until you get to like uh, the last two or three Dracula films in the series, which are modernized. Uh, I, I actually use that theme in the uh, Christopher Lee tribute thing, and I've always liked this score, but I, I've liked it even more since then, since I've just sort of been using it and listening to it a lot more. Really, really good. It's it's a great score. You can get this in basically two different versions. There, The USA version had 91 minutes, and that basically cut out all the shots of nudity in the beginning of the brothel scene or whatever. A couple scenes of blood... And like extended like looks on victims' faces and stuff like that, like this bolt, this subtle bullshit. But uh, you can basically get the uncut version now, basically anywhere you look for it. Again, yeah, it, it is my it is my favorite uh, Dracula film from the Hammer Studios. I love Christopher Lee's physical performance here. The fact that he says basically nothing actually, I think, heightens the performance to quite a degree. And I think Christopher Lee was a smart enough actor to know that probably all the lines he'd written for him were bullshit in the first place. So he's like, I'm not saying that shit. I'm just going to make this really good and do it my way. And I think it works. I agree. Yeah. All right. And now we're going to look at horror express from 1972. For 2 million years in these subterranean caves, a creature of superhuman evil was entombed in a wall of ice waiting to be free waiting to live again travel with us on a journey into a world where nightmare becomes reality two million years ago. Got onto that crate, killed the baggage man and put him in there. Yes, I am. It's alive. It must be. Travel with us, if you dare, on the Horror Express. Search the train and find it, whatever it is, and destroy it. But if it's alive... I want this kept quiet. I don't want to panic the passengers. (laughs) 
transcendent power of this creature is indestructible, transferring its force from mind to mind, from body to body. Beast is not dead. I put four bullets into him. You think evil can be killed with bullets? Satan leaves. The animal that you shot was only the host. It's alive in someone on this train. You saw his eyes. One look at them and you're dead. Anything that moves near that door, kill it. Run. Run for your life. Hide, but you can't escape. No one can stop the fury and the terror of the Horror Express. Directed by Eugenio Martin, written by Arnaud de Usso and Julian Zimit. Uh, this one is a Spanish production, not a Hammer or an Amicus production, but it does star Christopher Lee as Professor Sir Alexander Saxton, Peter Cushing as Dr. Wells, Terry uh, Telly Savalas uh, in a really great role here as Captain Kazan. Alberta de, de Mendoza as Father Perjadov, uh, Sylvia Tortosa as Countess Irina Pet- Petrovsky, uh, Julio Pina as Inspector Miroff, Angel del Paz- Pozo as, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that word, um, Helga Line as Natasha, Alice Reinhardt as Miss Jones, and George Rigaud as Count Marion Petrovsky. And I'll let you get into the uh, little synopsis here, Daniel. This is a film that opens with an extended sequence of uh, just listening to a train move by um, mm-hmm. over black, which was uh, very confusing uh, because I th- at first I thought the video on my uh, downloaded copy was not working properly. You do get <laughs> very quickly introduced to a, uh, a uh, stunning and uh, gorgeous Christopher Lee who... Um, is in no way a completely magnetic and fascinating individual in this film that uh, you uh, can't take your eyes off of. This is definitely not an actor that we should definitely be paying more attention to as a culture. Uh, what, what did this guy do? I mean, he just Nothing. appeared after this film, right? He, he doesn't, yeah, I mean, he's really only in this one film and then just kind of goes away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my my sincere apologies for not uh, completely being. I, I wish he had died a year later so I could have like found some of his films and then like had more to say when he died. That's kind of how I feel. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we open on a, a young Victorian scientist in uh, 1906 who is uh, taking a, a Trans Siberian journey. He has a package which uh, is mysterious and. Uh, it's not able to be marked by markers uh, in the shape of a cross uh, for some obscure reason. Well, uh, white chalk on white fucking cloth. Go fucking figure. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then um, somehow, somehow, this does not work. I don't. I don't understand why this happens. So, um, he's a man of science. He's a man of reason. He's a man um, who is uh, very much after my own heart. He has a buddy in the uh, Royal Society who is played by um, young Doctor Who, D.R. Period Who. Oh, no, no. 
Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing plays that role. That's another guy we should really be paying attention to. I really think I really wish that guy would be in like a a movie, like um, some big special effects movie in the seventies. Yeah, like I really, I, mean, I really feel like I really they, feel they like really, they really missed the boat. They didn't cast this guy. In yeah, some, yeah, they didn't. Oh. They didn't cast this guy in that. So um, it's it's uh, disappointing, really. Um, <laughs> the two of them together work to um, do some science and uh, some observation. Eventually, discover that um, the killings that are happening aboard this train, which I didn't mention because I didn't write this summary down ahead of time, and I apologize for my uh, complete unprofessionalism. Except you did pay for this podcast. Exactly nothing. At least yeah, if somebody exactly. charged you for it, it was it didn't go to us. It didn't go to me. If Lee's charging you for this podcast, then fuck you, Lee. You um, should be paying us, motherfucker. <laughs> you eventually learn that there is uh, some supernatural force that's killing people aboard this train, but it's not supernatural. It turns out to be a, a space alien who has uh, been on this planet for uh, millions or billions of years, uh, inhabiting the different uh, organisms. And um, apparently has the ability to create zombies, as we learned towards the mm-hmm. end, in a um, a shocking twist that kind of comes out of nowhere and it's completely unmotivated and doesn't make any sense. Um, also, um, Kojak yeah. shows up to uh, steal some scenes uh, around the three-quarters mark. Um, this film is way better than I'm making it sound. Uh, I apologize for my terrible plot synopsis. Lee, what do you think of my plot synopsis? I covered some of the major points. It covered some of the major points. Is exactly uh, where I was trying to go with that plot synopsis. So you know. Now, also, um, I wish Paul was here because uh, the uh, priest guy looks exactly like Paul. In yeah. My mind, you know. Well, he either looks like Paul or he looks like fucking Robert De Niro with like really long hair. Every time I was looking at this guy, I was like, "That's Robert De Niro." That's fucking it's Robert, Robert De Niro. It's Robert De Niro from Mean Streets with long yeah. hair. Yeah, I don't know. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, but this is uh, a great fucking film. And uh, essentially, this is an adaptation of uh, John John Campbell Jr.'s John, John W. Campbell's. Yeah, Don, John W. Campbell's uh, Jr.'s. Who goes there? It is essentially uh, the second adaptation of that after Thing from Another World, and then later, of course, we get John Carpenter's The Thing. But it essentially goes on the sort of sort of the same premise. Also, sort of has elements of Agatha Christie's Tin Little Indians mm-hmm. uh, or Murder on the Orient Express, even as well. Um, yeah, yeah. This this involves. I was I was telling a uh, friend, a Doctor Who friend, a Doctor Who podcaster friend, that I was going to be doing this film on this podcast, mm-hmm. and he said, "Didn't you already watch that?" Um, and uh, there's there's a recent Doctor Who story, the oh, Mummy yeah, yeah, Orient Express. Gonna... Yeah, which is uh, yeah. very much the same story, <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, about about the the halfway mark, I'm like, my god, this is the same fucking story. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, I, anyway, I, I, I apologize, I interrupted you, but yeah, no, it's all right. I hadn't I hadn't watched that episode, but I'm glad you reminded me. I was gonna I was actually gonna mention that uh, how I was gonna I was gonna ask you how close this was to that episode actually. But this is great. Uh, this is basically it starts off with two rival scientists, and this is probably the. For me personally, this is probably the best pairing of Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing that I've ever seen in a film. And I've seen a lot of them. But here, they're just having a lot of fun together. They're rival scientists at the beginning. Uh, Christopher Lee here, he's a really guarded dick who does not want anyone to fuck with his shit. Because the opening sequence, he finds this fossil. Well, not even a fossil. He calls it a fossil, but it's not a fossil. It's a frozen uh, hominid of some sort in the ice that he finds in Manchuria. 
Technically, it's still a fossil, but go ahead. Uh, but you know, it's it's not it's not stone or whatever. It's actually you know like there's the the physical body is still there. So he he's got this in this big crate, and he's trying to load it on the train and and get it to fucking England so he can uh, you know revolutionize the theory of evolution, find the missing link and all that stuff. Of course, right off the bat, there's some sneaky little thief at the train station who tries to break into the box and dies for his efforts. He goes totally blind. His eyes are totally white and uh, bleeding. And so that's kind of mysterious. But, you know, they get on the train. Peter Cushing's character is definitely interested what's in Christopher Lee's box, which, uh, taking out of context... Aren't we all, really? Aren't we all? Yeah, sound very, very dirty. But he he pays a uh, porter on the train to look into the box for him, and the porter also dies under simpler circumstances. Um, An inspector on the train, uh, the Mirov character, starts suspecting that something really weird is going down. Uh, The killer is, of course, the ape man specimen in the box, uh, gets out of the box, um, seems to be picking up the skills of its victims, um, which is a very cool idea in this. Um, I really like that. And basically, it gets out of the box and starts killing people in the train. Uh, they Halfway through the film, they kill the ape man, and it seems like everything's fine. But no, there's this even a bigger twist. The alien presence that inhabits the ape man's body can jump to other bodies and basically opens up the second half of the film to even more possibilities of who the fuck's the alien and shit like that um really really well done this one definitely borrows a lot more closely from who goes there than uh the thing from another world does um maybe not so much as john carpenter's film does i think john carpenter's film actually is probably the direct really the, the, Car- the carpenter film despite not having the, the title is i mean basically a straight adaptation just yeah. updated for for modern uh, you know 1981 uh, with very, I mean, just like and then elaborations based on special effects. I mean, mm-hmm. thematically and structurally, it's basically the same story. Um, this is a very loose adaptation. Who goes there? Yeah, the the alien in this one doesn't um, absorb its victims and then like become them or whatever. This this is an alien presence that can jump from victim to victim. It it does suck out the knowledge of some of its victims. Like if it's just going to straight up kill somebody, it uses its glowing eyes to somehow suck the knowledge from a person's brain and learn everything it knows and then move on. It's pretty cool. Once they discover that the the alien is doing this, there is a direct connection, of course, to the Who Goes There and the Carpenter film and the thing from Another World where they do the... Where in those films, they do the blood test. Here, they do the eye test where they're going for a magnifying glass like mm-hmm. in everyone's fucking eyes. So I thought that was neat. I think the special effects in this are really well done. Like it's very, it's a very cheap, it's a very cheap production, but they hide the uh, they hide the uh, sort of early hominid creature to pretty well in the darkness so that it doesn't look like shit and you know you don't see it right up front. Um, and then when they move on, the effects are very well done. I like how every time it starts putting on the glowing eyes and sucking a person's knowledge out, you get that sort of buzzing guitar sound in the soundtrack or whatever that sounds really cool i, I really like that because essentially what they're doing is is, is it's sort of like boiling the person's uh brains and eyes there's there's that scene where uh, uh peter cushing looks at like a boiled fish and it's got blind eyes or whatever because it was boiled 
So I, I like that. There is some hokey shit in this, though. I, I, I will say, like, some of the science in this is kind of fucking hokey. <laughs> like, I, ha- actually, I have some thoughts on that, actually. In um, that is, I feel like it's uh, it's hokey, but it's accurate to 1906. I feel like it's almost clever in the way that, like, the uh, the memories are are in the eyes. Like, this creature has memories in, in its eyes. There, there are a lot of uh, kind of science fiction, kind of pseudo scientific things that are kind of based on uh, the idea that the eyes are, in some sense, the the repository of memory. For instance, mm-hmm. um, it felt knowing to me in, in its hokiness. It felt like it was kind of going back to that pulp era, to that uh, to those kinds of ideas and those that kind of science. It, it felt less like we're just saying something stupid that's just going to get you by, and more like we're actually trying to embrace these tropes. Uh, no, I, I, I totally agree. Because, again, this is another case, just like in Taste of Blood and Dracula, where the characters sell everything. The, the actors are so good that they sell even the most out-there fucking ideas. They sell them totally. Like, it, they work within the context of the film. And I will say the only thing, honestly, that out of all the science in the film, that goes a little too wonky for me is when they're actually looking in the eyeballs of the creature and they see like pictures of dinosaurs and stuff. Okay, that's fine. The creature saw dinosaurs. I can accept that. Uh, but how they would recognize what the earth looked like in 1906. Uh, I don't know if I quite, I don't know quite if I quite buy that, but that's just a, like a minor fucking quibble. I mean, for the most part, these characters uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, they, they sell the science in this really well. And, I mean, it's because they have confidence. Like, they just act with total confidence, and they sell the shit. And and the other characters around them, they have a sense of, like, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee are authorities, and the characters around them accept their authority. So, overall, the entire movie sells the whole idea that, you know, so it works. Pretty much totally agreed. I, I, I do like this film a lot. I think um, I actually probably liked this film more than I liked Taste the Blood of Dracula. I do too. But I think Taste the Blood of Dracula is reaching for more, if that makes sense. like I, yeah, I feel I like Taste the Blood of Dracula is trying for something that it doesn't quite reach, whereas I think Horror Express isn't really reaching for all that much except kind of being creepy and evocative and uh, interesting, but achieves it much better. So uh, I, I do think I do. I, I did really enjoy this film. I wanted to watch it twice just to, uh, to catch all those kind of plot. I missed on the, on the first, I just didn't have a uh, quite have time for that. Christopher Lee is just magnetic. Uh, he is <laughs> phenomenal in this film. He's a, he's I, a badass in this film. Like, like, First off, was he was he was he a skeptic in real life? Like was he was he an atheist and and such? Uh, he, he was not. An, he, he was not an atheist. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was a devout Catholic to some degree, <laughs> but I mean, he didn't. He didn't. I mean, you know that that doesn't mean he was an unreasonable person. That, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not trying to. I was just. No, uh, no, no, no. Uh, between this and I saw him in um, uh, Doctor. Uh, Terror's House of Horrors? Yeah. Yeah. I saw him in that, and he he's kind of has that same uh, skeptical, uh, you know, no, that's nonsense kind of uh, perspective. And I, uh, he's, he's, he's so uh, 
strong on that, and uh, I believe him totally. I mean, obviously it's a performance, but I, I'm also on that. Uh, it felt like something that was actually coming from Christopher Lee, so I, I wasn't sure if there was a, a personal life connection to that, to where he, he really just kind of had no time for um, you know pseudoscience and uh, yeah, you know, um, kind of, uh, over-religiosity um, or whatever. I'm per- I'm, I, I get the... I get, like, I don't know how much of a Catholic he was. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was actually a Catholic, but other than that, I don't know okay. like, how deep his uh, that, was. That, was, that was just a question. In any case, he sells this really fucking well. He does. Well. He's so thing, good. Yeah. And there is this, one of the things I really admired about this film, and I mean, this does come directly from the Campbell original, one of the things I really admired was the, the idea that this is not a supernatural creature. This mm-hmm. is you know, deliberately, this is an alien, this is something in our material world. And I think that, um, especially doing a horror film, you know, the temptation to just make it some ghost or demon or whatever, um, to make the the priest ultimately right when he uh, complains that, uh, that Lee is not taking seriously his objections and, you know, that this is like this creature of Satan must have been kind of overwhelming, but but the filmmakers deliberately make the choice to make this a mm-hmm. something in the material world to make Lee's character right, and that's something that I always appreciate. Um, basically making the priest, when he decides to give him over, give himself over to the creature and, and um, you know, embracing the... Uh, satanic uh, side of what, yeah. he, what he calls Satan. And basically it's like, no, this isn't some supernatural being at all. This is just some space alien that uh, has more powers than you do. So um, you kind of fucked yourself over, dude. Yeah. Uh, which um, I appreciated that element of it a lot. Although it's not overt, there there is kind of a Lovecraftian connection here where it, it definitely deals more with uh, scientific than it does the supernatural. Uh, like, a lot of Lovecraft's uh, evil entities and stuff were just alien beings that were beyond our comprehension, right? And right, I mean, right. and it, it goes just goes back to that thing like um, our science uh, presented to like uh, cannibals in Papua New Guinea or whatever is magic, you know? So I mean, it's right. the same idea. I, I, I love how they get to the last little third of the film and Telly Savalas just jumps in. And he just—he literally—he literally just opens up a sheet, and suddenly it's like, "Oh, it's Tally Savalas, motherfucker! Come on!" Yeah, you know, I—I I just love he's, he's just in like fifteen minutes of this, and just completely owns it the entire time. Yeah, he just—he um, just swaggers in, and I mean, Tally Savalas is known for doing this shit. I mean, Tally Savalas mostly just played Tally Savalas in whatever fucking film he did. Yeah, he does—he does Tally Savalas with a slight Russian accent. And, yeah, uh, he's glorious. He's. I, I, uh, I love it. Honestly, he's, honestly, can I say this? And and I mean no disrespect. To, he's my favorite thing in this film. <laughs> no, no, he is the best thing in this film. I mean, he he just jumps in and he's this Cossack captain who basically jumps on the train like midway through the fucking travel schedule or whatever. And he's like, "Okay, we, we've heard there's weird shit going on in the train, so we got to get in here and look for rebels." And he's determined to find rebels, no matter how hard he has to fucking dig. <laughs> and it's great. He just—he's like, "Fuck you! I'm going to shoot you if you disagree with me." At this point, and this, these are minor spoilers. I mean, fucking watch the film. If you haven't watched the film yet, just shut it off and watch the film. But it's um, on YouTube. Go, go. Yeah. It's literally this is a film in the public domain. You have no excuse not to watch this. Go watch it. Like, yeah. just stop. Go watch it and come back, and we'll keep talking. Yeah, but it's cool. Like halfway through, Mirov shoots the creature, 
and then the creature jumps into his body, and then there's some... Although, okay, that's the other hokey part I want to mention, that that that's the one part I don't get, where Miroff, one of his hands, is it turns into the creature's hand, like the previous host or whatever. That was like, okay, that's kind of bullshit. That's, that's more of a inform the audience that he's the monster now or whatever. So I didn't quite like that. But yeah. anyway... That's a, that's the kind of little thing you just kind of accept on a certain level. Like like it, it goes with the territory of, of like I get that ultimately I don't expect these films to work on a literal level. I just yeah. I just don't. I just I, I forgive a lot of that kind of stuff if the moment is effective, and I think it is effective. And I mean it wor- it works well like, enough. Why, did, that- why can why can he only uh, switch hosts in the dark with with yeah. his high power thing? Like you know, once you accept one, you kind of have to accept the other. You know what I mean? You know. And, and, I mean, at least it, it allows him to rip one of the Cossack's faces off with his claw hand. So, that you know, that works. Um, hey, you know. But, yeah. Well, he's communist, right? Yeah. 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 But, but Amirov is, uh, is, is outed as the alien by uh, Telly Zavallis' fucking Inquisition there. And Telly Zavallis, just out of nowhere, he's just got a fucking knife up his sleeve. He just... Whoosh, throws it in his fucking back and then starts shooting him. I'm like, yeah, he's a fucking badass. And even when the uh, alien... Who loves you, baby? That's yeah, all I was thinking. Exactly. During that scene, who loves you, baby? And and then when when the uh, when the uh, mad priest who is definitely modeled after Rasputin... Um, oh, yeah. yeah uh, when, when he gives himself over to the alien and the alien jumps into his body, he comes back and he starts killing Telly Zavallis and all of his men. He basically just knocks the lights out in the car and just starts wiping them the fuck out. I, I just love how Telly Savalas is like, I'm not going to die like a bitch. I'm going to come at this creature with my sword and shit, and right to the very end, he's like staring a creature in the fucking eyes and trying to get up and shit, and then he dies. And I was like, yeah, that that's a great fucking cameo appearance for Telly Savalas. Like, it just... It, in 15 minutes, he owns the whole fucking film, and it's like, wow. Fucking amazing. Yep. And then that's where this film really kicks into gear. Like you mentioned uh, previously, zombies. All of a sudden, the creature is like cornered. So the creature all of a sudden brings up this power where, hey, I'm going to resurrect all my victims all of a sudden. <laughs> this, this, is, this is the equivalent of Christopher Reeve having the ability to rebuild the Great Wall of China in Superman 4. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's it's almost that random. Like suddenly, like oh no 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 no! Now I can just uh, bring up fifty zombies to come and eat you guys. Like you know, what in the in the final ten minutes of the film? Just go with it. It's an effective sequence. I'm not I'm not saying it's not an effective sequence. I'm just saying it makes no fucking sense. But you know, oh, it, it felt like we need an ending, so we need to tack some shit in there. Well, and and <coughs> we are if I, if I am allowed to to criticize to a certain degree. I mean, mm-hmm. ultimately. All you really needed for the end of the film was just this sense of uh, this creature is going to eventually be able to kill everyone on the train if the creature isn't destroyed. So having the zombies kind of rise up, I mean, it does, it is like kind of effective visually, but ultimately it's not, it's not necessary to kind of raise the stakes for the end of the film. But it but it kind of justifies the everybody's going everybody's dead anyway so let's just destroy the train and not have to feel too bad about like you know the innocent well, people who might have been on the train sort of thing you know well well I mean all the innocent people get put to the back car anyway that they disconnect right, right. from the train 
And essentially the zombies, they just serve as a barrier for Christopher Lee and the uh, main girl, the uh, Countess <laughs> or whatever, too. Can to... we talk about that character in a minute? Because... Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that, it, it just serves as a barrier for them to get back to the uh, end car and, and escape danger or whatever. Could just go on to the, uh, to the Countess character if you want to talk about that. Sure. I, I don't have much to say except, I mean, obviously... Um... <laughs> kind of has that same thing that uh, I didn't really talk about so much in uh, Taste of Blood of Dracula, and that uh, all the women in this film are gorgeous. Um, oh, yeah. It does, it does seem to be a... Uh, <laughs> both of these films, really, are just uh, filled with uh, completely gorgeous women from the early 70s. I have Two no redheads! Two, Two redheads! redheads. Uh, can you not see why I love this film? <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> The the, uh, the woman who plays the Countess, I don't know if you've uh, Googled her recently, uh, she was doing, like, uh, swimsuit shoots in her 60s. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I did, a, like, a Google image search, and it's like, wow, you look great. Like, well, I know, um, I know uh, Helga Line, who played the uh, spy character, mm-hmm. the, the other redhead in this one, she was doing, like, sexploitation stuff well into her 40s. Awesome. So I need to start looking her up and uh, seeing what else she was in. But uh, the the council, I mean, ultimately the the women are in this to to look pretty and uh, mm-hmm. to to kind of make our male gaze happy. And I'm I'm kind of okay with that. Uh, I, I wish she had a little bit more to do in the film, but uh, you know, she's fine. Like there there's no uh, there's yeah, no, no issue there's... with her performance or anything. Like uh, she she's compelling to look at. She she has a bit of a character, and then um ultimately. Uh, Chris Trulli is just way more interesting to look at and uh, a much more uh, in, in well, involving yeah. character. So well, you just well, kind of follow him around, you know. Well, Chris, Christopher Lee gets to be like the major fucking badass in this film, like even more so than Tully Zavallis to a degree. First off, like throughout most of the film, he has that arrogance about him, right? He just doesn't take shit from anybody, even if it means he's going to get a butt of a rifle into his fucking gut. Mm-hmm. He's like, fuck you. No, don't touch my fucking specimen. Fuck you. And then by the end of the film, he's just got a fucking sword and a shotgun, and he's just start gunning people down and stabbing people. Shit. And I'm like, yeah, Christopher Lee, he's fucking action hero all of a sudden, for fuck's sakes. And that, that was pretty fucking cool. I, I, I do like how um, Peter Cushing's character is this like, scientific rival, and he's kind of a bit more seedy, and, and he, you know, a little bit more mischievous and shit. Yeah. Yeah. And and I do like this sort of underlying... It's it's kind of funny. They almost make fun of it where it's like white British Victorian male is is, is the uh, obvious hero in this film. Uh, there's that scene where Inspector Miroff is talking to both of them. And he's like, uh, you know, how are we going to find the monster and shit? And they're like, well, we'll do this and we'll do this. And he's like, okay, you two together, that's fine. But what if one of you is the monster? And then Peter Cushing is like, Monster? We're British, don't you know? (laughs) The animal that you shot was only the host. And when that animal died, the alien intelligence transferred uh, somehow uh, to another host. It's alive in someone on this train. You're a very good detective. You've discovered everything except who is now the host. That's our next step. Thought this might come in handy. Oh, good idea. Two of you together. That's fine. 
But what if one of you is the monster? Monster? We're British, you know. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, fucking yes, that's that's like the best line of the fucking film. It's so good. Yeah, no, that's that's uh that's a great line. I uh I actually I, I do want to watch this one again. I, I'll admit, you know, a lot of these kinds of films I I kinda watch it once and, and miss some of the, the details on it, but um uh it's it's effectively done and I would uh absolutely love to uh to give it another shot and uh and, and catch some of that stuff and uh I don't know. I think for me, it's it's effective for its genre. I liked it. I enjoyed it, but I didn't really come away with anything except like uh, that was a fun fucking movie. Taste of Little Dracula kind of uh, engaged me more uh, on a on a kind of you know it made a lasting impression a little bit more. But, yeah, no, um, I, I I can see that. I mean, this is this is much more. Um, this is a combination of like basically hammer horror and uh, euro horror to a certain degree. Like it, it's a bit more. Uh, this this was before Hammer really sort of really jumped on trying to modernize their product to a certain degree. So here you get a bit more of the sort of bloody, uh, eerie, creepy kind of Euro stuff going on. Another thing I'll mention, another connection to Who Goes There is um, the idea that the creature is looking to get off the planet. Mm-hmm. So some of his victims, he's looking for victims who have knowledge of like rocketry and stuff like that in like 1906. <laughs> And like sucking their brains and shit, and right like, there's a there's a huge uh, sequence which uh, actually uh, name checks uh, uh, Tchaikovsky, yeah, who was um, one of those early uh, scientists and engineers doing uh, work that um, is still kind of considered hugely influential on uh, Goddard, uh, Goddard, and uh, some of those other guys. So um, yeah, because yeah. like like he goes after that sort of a scientist guy and sucks his rocket knowledge. And he actually, and he also goes after the uh, count or whatever who uh, was basically he had a his secret formula that was the spy was trying to steal was a formula for steel like a new formula for steel that was you know more more uh, more tough than steel beforehand. So I'll, I'll just go here a, a couple things about this one. Uh, this was not a success in Spain. Uh, it it actually did well abroad, um, and that's probably. More to do with the fact that the actors were well known outside of those markets, like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, everyone fucking knew them. So it was very much more successful outside of Spain, and it it actually aired a lot in the seventies and eighties. Uh, so that's where it picked up a lot of its audience. Um, the train interior sets and the train models used for this, and actually, uh, I gotta say, the train models are actually pretty good. Like they're, uh, although you could like if you look at them closely enough, you go like, okay, they're obviously fake. I mean, they're obviously models, but they look good. Well, they sold, I mean, they and, sold and them. You can't, you can't expect it on some level not to just kind of look like a model. Like, yes, it looks like a. It's like looking at CG today. Yeah, it fucking looks like CG. It doesn't mean it looks bad. It just looks like CG. I did, I don't. I don't kind of get that complaint. Yes, it looks yeah. like a model. And the, these were all taken from uh, previous uh, production by the producer and director for uh, Pancho Villa from 1972. Mm-hmm. Um, which had just finished production, and also Telly Savalas was in that one as well, so he basically was brought on for this. This fell into public domain. This is probably, after Night of the Living Dead, one of the most uh, reproduced <laughs> public domain films in shitty versions everywhere, and yep. I've seen several of the shitty versions. Image Entertainment released what I consider can be called nothing short of a total restoration of this film um, back in 2000 on DVD. 
that has fallen out of print. You can probably still find a version somewhere per, for way probably way too much money. The version I have is from uh, Jinian Entertainment, which is pretty fucking decent. It's pretty much on the level of the shit you can find on YouTube right now. And it's dirt cheap. Uh, also, Severn Films releases on Blu-ray and DVD, and from what I understand, it's a great fucking set. A lot of good extras. Apparently, there's a hour and 20-minute interview, audio interview, that you can actually play while watching the film with uh, Peter Cushing. This film almost did not star Peter Cushing. This is... Uh, I think I mentioned this before in another episode of the podcast, but um, Peter Cushing had just recently lost his wife, like a year before or something like that, and he was despondent and didn't want to do movies anymore, and Christopher Lee actually convinced him to come onto this production and act with him, and this sort of the catalyst to get uh, Peter Cushing back into acting. So really great. And these two work off each other really well in this film. Like, again, I said, I do. Yeah. No, I, I do. I, I do feel like, uh, and um, controversial opinion, maybe uh, Cushing's a little bit wasted, you know, like, uh, well, yes, yeah, it's, it's not that they're not, me. it's not that they're not good together. It's just Christopher Lee is so much more uh, what you're looking at in so many scenes. I feel mm-hmm. like it could have kind of been anybody. But I'm really happy um, if they were working together and if it's essentially Christopher Lee trying to say, come back to acting, come, you know, be in more films and, and come give us more of your work. I, I feel like that's a, uh, you know, that by itself is worth it. I, I, he's not bad in the film at all. It's just sort of like, it, you know, if you're watching this uh, and you're, you're just kind of like, oh, Peter Cushing is going to be fucking Peter Cushing. And yeah, he's he's there. He's good. He's fine. It's just kind of okay. That's that's all. That's all I have to say about Peter Cushing. Yeah, and he uh, made very little impression on me in this film. Whereas Christopher Lee is just magnetic, you know. Yeah, yeah. Christopher Lee is the center of this one. Also, want to just make a special mention of uh, Alice Reinhardt as Miss Jones, which was uh, Peter Cushing's assistant or whatever. I really like that character. Like, she's even like probably a a more stalwart scientist than the the two of them are. And, and, and I just love how she's like, uh, and she even makes note of how she's like a woman and like a man dominated yeah, world yeah, at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I need I, to. I, I need to go back and watch this film again. I, I feel really bad if uh, I'm going to go back and watch it again and go, shit, this is a way better film than I gave it credit for. And, and uh, Lee was right and I was wrong, which is probably the case. Uh, honestly, I, I just kind of I watched it. I enjoyed it. I just didn't get a lot out of it, um, and maybe that's because I was. Uh, kind of implicitly comparing it to um, Taste yeah. of Blood, uh, which, at least on surface level, has kind of more to dig into. Because I really like your version of the film. Like, what you're describing sounds amazing. I just m- maybe miss some of the detail. So, um, you know, that's kind of where I land on it. And uh, I feel bad. I feel bad for uh, talking about the film and um, and not having dug into it as much as I maybe should have. No matter. I mean, that's what this podcast is about—just fucking like opening people up to films. And I mean, if it if it means a fucking revisit, I mean that that is an accomplishment. Like that is you know mission to fucking accomplish it. So, I guess we can uh, go on now to plugs. So, uh, Daniel, uh, tell us about your Doctor Who podcast. Well, if uh, you like hearing me talk about things and are a fan of Doctor Who, or just want to listen to my wife roll her eyes at me on a, on a regular basis. <laughs> Uh, go check out my Doctor Who podcast. Uh, you can find that. At, it's called Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. And you can find that at Oi Spaceman, all one word, dot Libsyn dot com. And um, yeah, that's probably the best thing to do. Cool. Check it out. 
Yeah, and uh, you'll get the bumper at the end to tell you where to go. You go to our uh, Podbean site. You can find us on iTunes there. Um, give us a five-star rating and a review. Review can be bad or good, but please give us a five-star rating because it'll help us be, you know, expanded in the iTunes uh, rankings and get more listeners. And that's what we want. We want more listeners. We want more feedback. Tell us what your favorite movies are. Tell us what you think of our opinions of movies. Uh, give tell, us. Re- tell me I'm full of shit. Tell tell Lee he's brilliant. Tell me I'm full of shit. That's the uh, that's the, the ideal way. that we want on this podcast. Or the other way around. I mean, it still works that way as well. Mm. Um, give us requests for mil- films you want us to do. I mean, you know, listen to a couple of episodes, see where we're going here, see the sort of trajectory that we're going through and uh February is romantic comedy month. All all Catherine Heigel and Kate Beckinsale all the time. Really? Uh I I'm I looking forward to listening to that podcast. I'm not fucking doing it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh you you and Paul can have fun doing that one. Um I'm sure Paul would be very happy to sit and watch Catherine Heigel movies for uh, for a month, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh next week uh tentatively uh, depending on if we get our schedules together and shit, it's going to be M from 1931. Uh, so that should be a pretty big episode. And then after that, it's going to be episode 50, and it's going to be fucking Dawn of the Dead from 1978. So uh, look forward to that one, guys. And thank you for listening. Thank you, Daniel, for joining me tonight. And uh, we'll see you guys later. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.